myself as an alcoholic, I base it on identification on how I interpret the definition of the word alcoholic as is defined in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, wherein it says that we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. And that's all it says. Does it make any reference to how much we drank, what we drank, where we drank, or what happened as a result of our drinking? It doesn't say in order to be an alcoholic, you got to live on Skid Row, drink wine, go to funny farms and institutions, marry the same woman three or four times. Those things do and often happen to other people who drink, too. I'm from Calistoga, California, and the only reason I want to clarify that is because we have a problem in California between the North and the South, and we're very, oh, I don't even know the word to use, but the Northern people don't like to be associated with the Southern people and vice versa with the Southern from the Northern. I live 80 miles north of San Francisco. I don't live in Hollywood. I'm not in the motion picture industry. I'm not a TV personality. And the reason I tell you that is because many times our central offices in California get requests from convention areas, you know, saying, could you furnish us a, a celebrity to come and speak at our banquet or TV personality? And, and we try to do the best we can. We check all the treatment centers to see who's in and who's out, you know. And, then if we can find a couple that are out, we often send them. But I live uh, up in what they call the Napa Valley. It's the wine country of California, a very enchanting place. If any of you have ever seen a TV program called Falcon Crest, uh, that's where I live. That's where I live. But we have the same alcoholic problem in the Napa Valley that you have in Jamestown, North Dakota, Bismarck, North Dakota, Fargo, North Dakota, or any other place in the United States. We have the same kind of AA meetings. We read the same book. We try to work the same program. I found it a little difficult here today to try to think of something that I might be able to talk about tonight because I'm in pretty heavy company, you know, when you have to follow uh, Cecil and Clancy and lovely Winnie, and then tomorrow morning you're going to be enchanted by Ramona. I, I try to find my, myself with, with, with something that could justify my presence, you know, amongst those kind of people, and it's rather difficult, especially when uh, I just talked over here in... Uh, in uh, Bismarck, I guess is the name of the place, uh, about five or six weeks ago. And uh, so I was in sort of a quandary today, you know, trying to think, what the hell can I talk about, you know? And, and then Cecil got me off the hook. Uh, he didn't know he got me off the hook, but this afternoon when he got to talking about sponsorship and God, uh, I got caught up in it a little bit. And, and in between the two meetings, I was out there in the hospitality room getting a couple of donuts and some coffee. And... Uh, I want to be very careful now because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And I don't want you to think I'm trying to put you down. But uh, I was sitting with my back to four people. Four people who had been in here listening to Cecil. And they were discussing Cecil's thought. And what they were discussing was God. God as they probably didn't understand him. Now, I have been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous Sober for 27 years. And it took me six years to get that. And I have been exposed to many facets of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, too, went through a period in my life where I thought the God stuff ought to be played down a little. And that's what these people were talking about. They were saying, oh, you got to take it a little easy on that God stuff. You know, you might chase off the newcomer if you start talking about God too quick. Might think it's some sort of a religious nut or something like that. And then one of these chaps, uh, and you're here because I sat for an hour since 7 o'clock right up there over set, uh, Section 3 to watch to see if you would be here tonight because with the permission of the rest of this group, I want to talk to those four people tonight. I want to share with you my experiences and my difficulties with what many of us can consider perhaps the closest thing to a guarantee in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Dennis just read it here just prior to me being introduced. If you were listening carefully, you heard Dennis read from the fifth chapter and that portion of the fifth chapter which he closed with where he reiterated the three pertinent facts. And the second and third of those three facts are the closest thing to a definite guarantee that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer any sick alcoholic who's reaching out for recovery. 
It's the closest thing to the answer. Listen carefully if you allow me to repeat it. Remember first, always, especially if you're new, who wrote this book? Whose words are in that book? They're not James Michener's words. They're not Ernest Hemingway's words. They didn't come from the Vatican. Martin Luther King didn't author this book. Brigham Young had nothing to do with it. This book was written approximately 54 years ago in a room, a room which many of us often said contained 100 men and women, the beginning members of Alcoholics Anonymous. But my sponsor, my original sponsor, who is deceased now, was one of them fellows, and I heard him tell it many, many times. There were basically only 79 people responsible for the writing of that book at that particular time. And in that group, they represented just as what we here tonight represent, a cosmopolitan group. Some of them believed in God, some of them didn't believe in God. Others claimed to be atheists, agnostics, true believers, non-believers, I don't give a damn, all sorts of people, just like we are here. But yet they agreed, which was probably the first divinely guided action of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, they agreed to put these words in the book. Quote, now remember, there were atheists and agnostics present at the authoring of this book. Second pertinent idea. We believed that no human power could relieve our alcoholism. That immediately poses the next question. For God's sake, if no human power, if my doctor, if my shrink, my therapist, my sponsor, Bill Wilson, Dr. Bob, Marty Mann, or whoever the hell you want to throw in there that is mortal, cannot cure my alcoholism, then pray tell who can. And then that same group of men and women, atheists and agnostics, Look across the table right now at the person opposite you, and then you will see who wrote the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, because that's who wrote it. People like you and I, our experiences, our strengths and our hopes. And then they said it in plain, simple, understandable language, the answer. But God... And they called him God. They didn't call it a rock. They didn't call it a chair or a lamp. They called it God. And then if there are any students of the English language here now, you know what positives are. Positives are one-word statements. God could. And could is a definite statement. So there was the answer. Who can help me? God can. Then we back off into that semi-denial. But Willie, me, and then they said, and would. And would is a definite one-word statement. So there is the answer to our problem. God can and God will. And then how wise, how wise, surely divinely guided, they pushed the whole problem right back where it belonged, into your lap. If he were sought. God could and would if he was sought. So it was you and I who were going to have to go after it. You don't sit on bar stools and say, well, here I am and I'm ready. Drop it on me, Charlie. God could and would if he was sought. Now, I had a lot of problems with that. I never had a problem with God. I'm born and raised in a good Christian home, educated in a parochial school system. I have always believed and accepted the presence of God. But the thing that was most difficult for me, and apparently may be the most difficult for so many, was to accept and believe 
in the power of God. The power of God. The power. I'm going to say some things now that to some of you may sound blasphemous. To others it may sound sacrilegious. But I assure you I have no intent to do that. I'm not here to make a mockery of any kind of formal religion. But I, as you, am bound by a moral obligation my love of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to share with you exactly how it was with me in, in total honesty. And that's what I'd like to do. And I said a silent prayer that you four people will listen to me carefully tonight. Because you can't take this program too lightly. Clancy said it last night. Some of us in this room will die drunk. That's a horrible thing to say, but it's valid. We can't be so naive to believe for one minute that everybody in this auditorium tonight is finished drinking. Our experience, your experience, and the experience of 55 years of Alcoholics Anonymous tells us that that's true that everyone in this room tonight is not finished drinking. You know what's scary about that? The decision to drink again that is made by sober alcoholics is made when they're sober. You are sober when you decide to drink again, which means that in sobriety we are capable of making an insane decision because it's insane for people like you and I to think for one minute that we can drink again, that we can go back to putting needles in our arms, chopping a few lines, smoking a joint or two, eating some of them pocket rockets or whatever the hell your game is, you know. It's insane for us to believe that. Now there's a couple of ladies over here that are looking at me awful because they think that I'm authoring those words. Let me tell you, dear, those are not original thoughts of mine. If and when you get around to reading this book, you will see where it says in the book, quote, and remember, they didn't know you, and it was 53 years ago that they said, quote, despite all that we can say, many who are real alcoholics, by every form of self-deception, and experimentation. They will try to prove themselves the exception to the rule. And they'll die. They'll die. Also in the book is the word dilemma. Now those of you who know me know that I don't have an education, a formal education. I'm born and raised in a sort of a ghetto-like atmosphere in New York City. And for no other reason than the reason that formal education was difficult for me, my schooling is zilch. You know, I was in what New York State, State Board of Regents referred to as special education. They made a TV program about it called Welcome Back Cotter, because that's the kind of a situation that I was in. A bunch of dumbheads, you know. You stayed in the same room for eight years, depending upon which came first, dating the teacher or smoking, determined when the hell you got out of there. And that's how it was with me. Oh, I got a high school diploma, all right. But that was just to make sure I didn't come back, I guess. That was about the only reason they gave me one of them. So I've been on a process of self-education for almost 30 years now. Suggested to me by a female cousin I have who's a literary agent in New York City. And, and she tried me with night school and correspondence school. And I just, I just can't pick up on formal education. So many years ago, she suggested, she says, why don't you every day as you read the newspaper, just as soon as you come across a couple of words that you don't understand or that you're interested in, look them up in the dictionary and probably look them up in about four or five different dictionaries because our dictionaries, as you know, differ in there. And so I pick out a couple of words every day, look them up three or four different dictionaries, then I have a thesaurus, and I look them up in the thesaurus to see how to use them. And then for that day, I try to use those two words as often as I can in my conversation. So 
sounds a little silly sometimes, but I get it done. And so over a period of now 30 years, I've sort of, you know, taught myself at least to understand a little bit more than I did at one time. But I'm fascinated by words. I've become fascinated by the English language. I've read the dictionary. And before you laugh at that, don't. It's the most interesting book you'll ever read in your life. A standard dictionary. And the words in Alcoholics Anonymous are fascinating. First time I saw that word dilemma, it just got me all... You know, Jesus Christ, it was like having a love affair. Because dilemma, you know, is the kind of word alcoholics like, you know. Man, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen, you know. And it's used, of course, in the big book where it says lack of power was our dilemma. Then I can't recall right now if it's in AA Comes of Age or, or some of the literature. But some other place it says, generally a dilemma will precede our decision as to whether to continue on in our madness or to reach out for recovery. I can think of no better word to describe the life of the practicing alcoholic than the word madness. Madness. Sheer, total madness. And so I got all excited about the word dilemma and I got to my dictionaries and looked it up and nothing really turned me on. And I couldn't quite understand it yet. And at that time we had a school teacher from one of the major universities in the East in our group, and I caught him out in the parking lot one night. I said, Paul, I just do me a favor, will you? I said, you know my problem with words, and I said, I got a problem with that word dilemma. I've looked it up in a dictionary. It can't help me at all. I said, tell me in, in, in words that I'll understand. What the hell does dilemma mean? And Paul thought for a moment. And he said, well, this ain't basic stuff, but it'll be good enough for you. He says, dilemma is when you have the opposite answers for the same question. And both answers are valid. What the hell? This guy's got to be experiencing the early stages of male menopause or something. You know? How can you have the opposite answers for the same question? He says, you just think about it for a while. He says, and in time it'll come to you. Well, I don't really know how long it took, whether it took a week or a day or a month or six months. But one day, all of a sudden, again, a moment of clarity, I knew exactly what he meant by opposite answers for the same question, and they're both valid. I knew what a dilemma was. And I honestly believe that most of you in this room have experienced that dilemma. Or maybe not in the same place I did. Maybe all different places, jail cells, kitchens, living rooms, doctors' offices, hospitals, wherever. It's a horrible moment. It's a horrible moment. Mine came in a scumbag of a place called Big Rothschild's sleazy, scummy saloon down on West Madison Street in Chicago, Illinois, in Chicago Skid Row. Filthy, piggish place. And I wasn't even 30 years old yet. And I had relegated my research to Chicago Skid Row for a year and a half. My drinking now had taken on that form where there was no need anymore for vocal communication, you know. You just shuffle in there in the wintertime with that multi-sized overcoat on and that probably come off of a dead body someplace. And you got to go through that humiliation. And only those of you who have been there know exactly what I'm talking about. You shuffle in there at 6 a.m. in the morning convinced. Convinced that if I don't get a goddamn drink in 20 minutes, I'm going to die. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you shuffle up to that bar there and that pimply-faced, sleazy little jackass that's behind there stands right opposite you, looking at you. He doesn't reach for the wine bottle or the glass until you start emptying them pockets. And out comes washers, bus tokens... Canadian dimes, Jap Japanese money, pennies, buttons, and you throw it all out there and you just pray to God that somehow in that mess something totals up to 15 cents. Because in those days it's 15 cents for a four ounce glass of wine. Certainly not the kind of wine that you get out where I live now. More or less something like that. Pride of Wells Fargo or North Dakota or something like that. And you have to go through that humiliation which 
But sometimes it seems like three days are going by while he scans your loot. And then all of a sudden he reaches out and he's found something that adds up to 15 cents. And you know you're going to live. You know you're going to live. God has just given you another 20-minute lease on life. You can go for another 20 minutes. Then he pours that drink. You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Four ounces of wine in a seven-ounce paper cup. They do that for two reasons, of course. One, that you don't spill it all over yourself. And that when you drop it, you're not going to break any glass. And then it's at that moment that people like me and you go through a hell that has been denied most normal people. I don't know how many of you have ever been on Skid Row. But let me tell you a secret about Skid Row. How you can always separate the common drunk from the alcoholic on Skid Row. The alcoholic always cries before his first drink. Always cries. Because that's good, too. Because, you see, he still knows not only what he's been doing to himself, but what he's been doing to those who still love him. And that knot that seems to be referred to as a football, that knot of guilt just inside of you just wants to tear you apart. You're so guilty. In the nature of my work, I talk with alcoholics every day. There's not a day goes by that I don't hear somebody say, Jesus Christ, give me a drink before I die. I hear that every day. And other things I hear is, Jesus Christ, stuff! I feel so goddamn guilty. And I have never been known as a guy who had too much tact. So I usually say, you should feel guilty. Because you are. You are. And they don't like that. They say, a bitch. Guilt is the greatest thing that can happen to an alcoholic. It's the greatest thing. Don't ever deny yourself guilt. Because guilt signals something. Because guilt starts right down in here. And it's down there because there's just a speck. Just a little light, just a little bit of decency left inside of your gut. Because if there was no decency in your gut, there'd be no guilt. And it's that little bit of decency that if nurtured, eventually gives birth to the willingness that sets us forth on this road towards a new way of life. New way of life. So when you sit there in that Rothschild, that scummy place, and you sit there crying, and you look at that paper cup, and me and you aren't dumb, we're not dumb. And you're saying things like, Jesus Christ, the hell is happening to me? If I drink this damn stuff, it's going to kill me! I know it's going to kill me if I drink it! And in the back of your head, that other guy is talking. And you're saying, but if you don't drink it, you'll die. That's opposite answers for the same question, and they're both valid. If I drink it, it kills me, and if I don't drink it, I'll die. And it's at that moment, at that moment, that we have to make a decision. And at that moment, in that state of mind, people like you and I aren't capable of making that decision. Who makes that decision? Who made my decision? I looked on my right. Perhaps there was somebody standing on my right that I didn't notice. There was nobody there. And I looked to my left and there was nobody there. Who the hell made that decision? And so when it came time for me, when approached by someone like you, who said, Duff, all you've got to do is, is reach out. You've got to become willing to accept this God. 
And I chased them away. Get the hell away from me. I don't want to hear that religious crap. Didn't come in here to be an altar boy. Go on, get the hell out of here. Go talk to some of them other jerks. And this was while I was sitting in the gutter in front of a blood bank at Broadway and Wilson in Chicago, Illinois, waiting to sell my blood for a lousy four bucks so I could have enough wine to go till noon. Not telling him to get God the hell out of my life. But his name was Ned Fink, and thank God he was a persistent asshole. He's one of them AA jerks. Wouldn't leave me alone. Bang, bang, just hitting on me, you know. Come on, come on. Get out of here, Ned. God's never been in my life, and he ain't now, so scrap. Ah, oh, come on, Duff, Shirley, Shirley. There must have been times you called upon God. No, go on, scram, get out of here. Come on, come on. I said, for Christ's sake, I says, Ned, there was only one time in my life that anything like that happened, and all that was was a coincidence. And let me tell you something. Don't ever say that word in front of an old-timer in AA. Coincidence. Man, the biggest smile came on his face. You know that, now I got your look, you know. And he says, hey, Doc, tell me about that coincidence. So I says, come on, I've got nothing to do with it. He says, tell me anyhow. So I said, well, all right. I said, Ned, I said, when I was about seven years old, my older brother Jack was dying. You young people wouldn't understand that, but this was before penicillin and antibiotics. My brother came down with double pneumonia and streptococcus, and it was a pretty bad deal in those days back in the 30s. And we were poor. We were on relief, the welfare system of the day during the Great Depression. And so there was no hospital for my, my family or people like us. The common practice in those days was the county or the city would bring a hospital bed to your home. And they'd place it up in your parlor or your living room, whatever you call it now. And a city nurse or a county nurse would visit two or three times during the week. And maybe once a week, I don't really know, a doctor would come around and they'd, that's how, how you get treated. And my brother lay in that parlor for, oh, five or six months, I guess. And nurse came by two or three times a week and the doctor. And, and one night... When the doctor was visiting, finished tending my brother, I heard him talking to my mother out in the kitchen. And I heard him tell my mother that my brother was going to die that night. And he said, Surely if he doesn't pass away tonight, he'll never make it through tomorrow. We've done all we can for him, but his lungs are filling up with water. And it's just a matter of hours now. I wish I could be real dramatic and cry now and do all of those things you're supposed to do, but I guess I was just too young then to realize the finality of death. So I just went off and went to bed like any other night and got up in the morning and went off to school. Mother sent me off to school just like any other morning. I didn't look in to see how my brother was or anything like that. I just went off to school. Never even asked about my brother. And on the way to school, I did the things that I'd always done. I stole a few pennies off the newsstands like many kids do so you could buy a little candy in the candy store and take it on to school. Now, one of the things you got to do when you're in the parochial school system is you got to go to church for half an hour before you go to school. They call it a half an hour. Actually, it's 19 days. At least it seems long. You know, it's the longest half hour in your life. And you sit there and you kneel there and you play with your baseball cards and you count your Emmys and you do this and you look around and you count the ceiling tiles and how many this and that. Anything to pass that ungodly half hour. And the nuns crack you with the sticks. You know, sit down, kneel, get up, get down, and you're up and down. And geez, just driving you crazy. I was raised in predominantly Italian neighborhood. It's called Little Italy in New York City. So uh, our parish was predominantly Italian. And I don't mean this to be insulting, but the Italian women have to be the greatest mourners in the world, you know. As soon as somebody checks out, bam, the black comes out. Everything turns black. And that was when black was in vogue as it is now, you know. And in the morning, the morning mass, the Italian women always furnished a little bit of excitement to help pass that half hour. Because they'd come in while the mass was on, and they'd walk down them side aisles. And you could hear them go, rattle them beads. Then they'd sort of disappear off into the corner. And you couldn't see them, but you I never in my wildest imagination realized how important that was going to be to me. 
But I used to have to sit in the front row of the church. And when the Italian women would get through in the corner, they'd have to come to the center of the church, genuflect, turn around, and then leave out the center aisle. And if they'd come by me, you know, I'd give them a shot like that, you see. And how strange. The only thing I remember noticing at that age was that when them Italian women came out of the corner of that church, whatever the hell they did in the corner of that church made them look better when they came out. Something in the corner of that church changed them people. And I had no idea what it was. I knew it could have been God. I thought the nuns used to talk about God, and I'd look around the church for God. And all I would see would be a bunch of statues. And I'd say, what the hell are they talking about? God, made out of plaster of Paris. Go down to Tijuana on Sunday, you can buy a thousand of them for five ninety-eight a piece, you know. Everybody's talking about, ask God for help, and he nothing but a statue. What the hell is he going to do? going to come down off there and do something for me? And that was my immature attitude towards a God of my understanding. So the day that I went to school after my brother had been told, or my mother had been told about my brother, I went through the school day and left school at 3.15, had my five little pennies to buy my candy. And I stood there in the corner waiting for Mr. Schaefer, the cop, to give me a little signal to cross the street and go on down the hill and go on home. And all of a sudden, I realized that my brother might be dead. That when I would get home, that my brother wouldn't be there. And of course, my mind began to do funny things, and I imagined my brother being placed in a hole, and I imagined people covering him with dirt, and, and I sort of panicked. And I turned around and realized I was standing in front of the church. And I thought about the Italian women. And I thought about the corner of that church. What the hell happens in the corner of that church? So I went in there and I went down the corner of the church. And that my arrival at the altar rail was sort of a disappointment because it looked no different than the rest of the church. Just another bunch of statues. But I had been programmed as a little Catholic to believe that any time I approached the communion rail, you have to kneel down. So I knelt down. I knew I'm supposed to pray. I don't really know if what I'm about to tell you now is true or not. I pray to God and I hope it was true. I certainly couldn't tell you what I prayed for or how I prayed. I wouldn't know. But I know what I didn't do. I know that I didn't recite any of them little rhymey little things that the nuns had made me memorize. I didn't recite all of them things that 10 million kids before me had been taught to memorize. Things that you've been taught to recite over and over again. No, no, no. Them things, you know, that we go, and we're all through them. No. I tend to believe that that afternoon was the first time in my life that I talked to whatever the hell I thought was God about my brother. And I talked to him from inside of me. And I asked whatever I thought was God to spare my brother. And then I got finished, and as I got up to leave, I noticed that there was a big brass thing right alongside of me with a whole lot of candles in it. Maybe a hundred candles. Fifty of them were lit. And it said, offering, ten cents. I fingered them five precious pennies of mine. And I guess I rationalized that as a kid I should get it for half price. So I put my five pennies in the little tube, and I lit every candle that wasn't lit. About fifty of them. Now my brother Jack is alive and well today. Comes out every year to visit me in California. He's retired now as the secretary treasurer of the Longshoremen's Union in New York City. An honorable, good man. Good man. But I wouldn't be so self-centered or egotistical to believe that my prayers had anything to do with my brother's life. I'm quite sure that my mother and my father and lots of aunts and uncles and certainly a lot of other people prayed with a lot more sincerity and a lot more often than I did for my brother's well-being. And I told that to this Ned. So I said, you see, Ned, God didn't have a damn thing to do with it. The doctor made a mistake. It was just a coincidence. 
But he wouldn't let go, boy. He had me now by the sleeve, you know, and he wouldn't let me go. And he kept pushing for more examples. And I said, there aren't no more. Forget it. Forget it. Now get the hell out of here. Let me a quarter and tram. Where do you get out of here? And he said, come on. Come on. He said, nothing. Let's be one more time. And I said, well, no. I said, unless you're talking about that other coincidence. He said, what other coincidence? So I said, it was, was in that same school, Ned. I said, now it was a few years later. And it's that great moment in young Catholic boys' lives. I'm going to leave the parochial school and go on into the public high school, public high school. And that early June morning here, the nuns came down through the rows, handing all the people their report cards. Everybody got a report card except me. I got a big white envelope addressed to my father. I didn't keep it, but I can tell you almost word for word what it said. It said something like this, Dear Mr. Duffy, it is the opinion of the faculty of Our Lady of Victory School that due to your son's difficulty in the English course, he be held for one more year at the eighth grade level. Now that's how it was written. My father wouldn't have read it that way. My father would have read it this way. Dear Mr. Duffy, because you are a dumb son of a bitch, your son is a dumb son of a bitch. And he would have wanted to kill me. He would have killed me. And I was full of fear. My God Almighty, what I have to take this home to my father? I remember thinking things like, what's the age limit for the foreign legion? And, and is it really true that if you dig a hole deep enough, you'll come to China? And, or anything, so I wouldn't have to face my father. And being the last day of school, I had emptied out my locker, gotten all them valuable things out of there. One sneaker torn sweatshirts, busted loose-leaf binders, half-finished bookends from the wood shop. And Mother had given me a nickel to take the trolley car home because she knew I'd be carrying all of these valuable, precious things. And I started down the hill, and I was standing on the corner, full of fear, waiting for Mr. Schaefer, the cop, to give me the signal to cross over, go on down the hill and get on the trolley. When all of a sudden I turned around, and I realized I was in front of the church. And I thought about my brother. I thought about the Italian women and I thought about the corner of the church. I turned around, I went into the church and laid all my stuff down on the vestibule there. And I went down to that corner and again I talked to somebody. I talked to somebody. And I put that nickel in there and I lit every candle again that wasn't lit. And then I left. I had to walk down the hill, and I got down there, lied like hell to the streetcar conductor, told him I lost my nickel down the sewer, and he let me on for nothing. I wound up sitting alongside of a great big guy. Must have been 19 foot 11. Got the biggest man I've ever seen in my life. Great big guy. So I had to keep my knees sort of out in the aisle, because there wasn't enough room for me and him. He was a man about 24 years old. And the streetcar just trundled along for a while, and after about 10 or 15 minutes, he turned to me and he said... Are you just getting out of school for the summer? I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, boy, I'll bet you you're happy. That was like taking your finger out of the dike. Man, I just poured it out. I cried, man, I cried. And I told this guy how ashamed I was and how fearful I was of facing my father and how embarrassing it was to have failed. And I just let him have it all, you know, and he listened to me. He listened to me. And then when I got all finished, you know, he made mention, he says, well, didn't anybody tell you that the public school system has what they call summer school? You could go to summer school, and he says, if you pass the course during the summer and forfeit your vacation, you'd get promoted. And I said, well, I don't know how the hell I could pass something in eight weeks that apparently I couldn't pass in 18. And he said, well, you'd have to do it a little different. He said, you'd have to leave them baseball cards home. You'd have to stop looking out the window. When people give you lessons to take home at night, you should take them home and do them. And I said, do you think that if I did all them things that I could pass, huh? And he sort of smiled, and he said, yes, I'm pretty sure you'd pass it. you think you could do them? I said, sure as hell, try. The man I was talking to that day retired seven years ago as superintendent of schools in Mount Vernon, New York. His name was Hamilton B. Ryder. The day he was sitting on that streetcar with me, 
He was a young student teacher assigned to his first professional job, teaching the English course at the summer school session. You know. Another coincidence, another coincidence. So here Ned knew he had me now, and he just opened up a floodgate, you know. And I came up with all of the coincidences in my life. And I was doing what the book had told me to do. God could and would if he would thought. So pretty soon I, I had no doubt about this power. But then God, a statue? Come on. Plaster statues? And the words, as you understand them, kept beating in my head. And Ned would say, as you understand them, Duff, as you understand them. And I just couldn't understand until one day, with you, with you. Doing something I've done a thousand times over, and you have too in AA. Chairman says, let's close this meeting in a usual manner. We all got up to close the meeting, and for the first time in my life, I didn't go, Ah, Father, and I no sooner said it than I knew what it was. Our Father. God as you understand Him. Not as you see Him. As you understand Him. Our Father. I want to tell you about my Father. My Father was the greatest thing in my life. He was the most exciting thing in my life. My father was everything in my life. I loved my father more than I have ever loved anything or perhaps ever will love anything in my life. My father stood about six foot four and must have come in at about 240. And every inch of him was a man. Now in the eyes of a district attorney by the name of Tom Dewey and in the eyes of the state of New York, criminal justice system my father was a criminal my father was a criminal but into the eyes of thousands and thousands of other people who call themselves New Yorkers my father was more of a Robin Hood than he ever was a criminal and he was more loved than he was ever hated I assure you of that I never knew my father all that well due to the nature of what he preoccupied himself with he wasn't around all that much you can call them racketeers, you can call them gangsters, or whatever the hell they called them in those days of the Irish gangs and the Jewish gangs and the Italian gangs, which was a violent period, aptly called the Roaring Twenties. And my father, of course, and some of my uncles and other relations were very dominant in the Irish gangs, and I make no excuse, they broke many, many laws, many laws, did many, many things that are that are not worthy of even talking about. But you can't take a little kid's memories away from his father. My father was great. My father knew the answer to everything. Anything I asked my father, he had the answer. And you know, he never went to church either. We used to go to the Elks Club every Sunday morning. And I was the baby in our family, and my father would hold my hand and walk me right through Little Italy. And let me tell you something, when you got a name like Duffy, and you live in Little Italy, you come up fighting every morning of your life, every morning of your life. All them little Dago assholes are out there to get a piece of your ass whenever they can. But I knew I couldn't be hurt because I'd be walking down there, and my dad would have my hand in his hand, and his hand was 15 times bigger than mine. And them little Dagos would be looking at me out of them store windows, you know, and they wouldn't fool with me as long as I had old dad's hand there. And my old man knew everybody. God almighty. And he didn't laugh. He roared. He used to wear a derby all the time and a vest. And everybody was always giving him something. We'd go past the bakery. And the baker would run out and give me some cookies. And the guy in the produce stand would give us a bag of apples. And fish guy would give you a fish. This guy would give you that. And he, my dad would holler the people up on the fire escapes and up on the rooftops and they'd come up and they'd talk with them and log each other and all that. He was just a great guy, I guess. And I, of course, I knew that he had a bad reputation and I was old enough to read the papers and see pictures and hear things mentioned at family gatherings. But I never saw none of that violence in my father. I only knew my father as a very gentle man, as big as he was. 
displayed one hot summer night, you know, when it was so hot in New York. No air conditioning in those days. And to cool off, we'd sit out on the fire escapes, or you'd sit out on the roof, or you'd sit out there in the steps of the stoop, trying to get a little breeze in from the ocean. Fire department would come around and open up the fire hydrants and spray the water, and the kids would run up and down the street. And I was sitting out on the steps with my dad one night, and my older brother Jack, the same fellow that I talked about before, raised pigeons up on the roof of our tenement house. And all of a sudden, my brother Jack came down from the roof, bawling his head off. And in his hand, he had his favorite pigeon. And the pigeon had somehow gotten its wing caught in a chicken wire. And it couldn't fly. It was just hobbling around on one leg. And this was tearing my brother up. And I can see my father right now reaching out for that pigeon with a massive hand, massive hand. And my brother laid that pigeon, you know, gently in his hands. And I even, for an apprehensive moment, I guess, thought, Jesus Christ, is he going to crush it or what's he going to do, you know? Because I thought he would just like that. But he put that pigeon in there, and honest, as I stand here now, I can hear that pigeon. You hear that pigeon go, and my father fooled around with the wing, and he took some string out of his underwear, and he fooled around here, and he had a toothpick, and he, and then pretty soon he put the pigeon down, and it flew away. And my brother stopped crying, and he was happy. God, how gentle he was. And what a dreamer. My dad used to take me down to the Hudson River. We'd stand there on Riverside Drive, you know, and he was a big bullshitter, too, you know. And I remember one year he said to me, you know, he says, next Saturday is your birthday. He said, I don't really know what to give you for your birthday. He said, taking you to the zoo. We've been out to Coney Island, seen the planetarium. He said, oh, I know what I'll do next Saturday. He said, for your birthday, I think I'll bring the whole United States Navy into the Hudson River. And I said, Dad, for Christ's sake, don't talk like that. You know, Don't be so silly, you know. And I'll be damned. Went down there the next Saturday morning, there's battleships all over the damn place. Heavy cruisers, destroyers. Of course, I have since come to find out that Navy Day also coincides with my natal birthday, you know. The Navy was also celebrating its birthday, October the 27th, you know. But that's the kind of a guy he was. And I'd never lie to my father. God Almighty, I'd never lie to him. Not for any moralistic reasons, but more out of fear, I guess, than anything else. So you see, not that my father is God, but my father represents to me what I understand God could be. And you know, I'm the luckiest guy in AA. Nobody can be as lucky as me. Because my father's been deceased now for 17 years. But every morning I spend some time with my dad. And every night I spend some time with my dad. I'll talk to him tonight, as I did last night and as I did this morning. And I talk to him as I would talk to God, but also as I would talk to my father. And I ask him maybe not the same questions that I asked my father. And God has always given me the answer. And I feel that same sense of well-being that I always felt when I held my father's hand. Because I know, and you should know, that as long as we have our hand in the hand of God, we're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. And so it's great to talk to my dad. And it's great to talk to God. I'm sorry, in a way, if that sort of sounds a little mauled into you. But I only say it, I only say it because of, of you four people. Please believe what these men and women who've gone before us said in that book. God could and would and would. Find your God. Understand your God. And talk to your God. Don't let the word pray scare you. Pray only means talking. Meditation only means listening. And I would offer you a challenge. And that's a horrible thing for a cocky little bastard like me to say. But I say it out of love, especially to you four. Hey, to all of us. I believe I can prove to all of you here tonight, 
I can prove to you not only the existence of God in your life, but I can prove to you the power of God in your life. Yes, I think I can do that. I would need just a little help from you in an endeavor like that. I would ask you all to be willing to at least attempt to pray tonight, even if you don't believe it. Even if you don't believe it. You don't have to do none of this. You don't have to fold your hands. You don't have to get down on your knees, you know. You're just going to talk. And if you happen to be sharing quarters with somebody, and you don't want to display this obvious sign of weakness in prayer, do like we did in prison. Put a blanket over your head and they'll think you're masturbating and that might make you feel more. And then for tonight only, I would ask you to do this. I would ask you to say, Dear God, and envision the God as you understand him. And say, Dear God, make tomorrow, which is going to be Sunday, a better day for. And you put the name of anybody you want in there. Hopefully somebody that you're going to see tomorrow, or somebody whom you'll be able to observe their day tomorrow. In other words, you say, God, make tomorrow a good day for Kevin. And then shut up. Close your eyes and go to sleep. And when you wake up tomorrow morning, don't you tell anybody who you prayed for tonight. You just keep that between you and God. Just you and God. And then I challenge you, yes, I challenge you to observe tomorrow what takes place in the life of the person you pray for tonight. Now, why can I afford to be so cocky about that? Why can I appear to be so certain about that? It should be obvious. Or there are so many of us in this room tonight who are still so self-centered, so full of denial, that we could deny why we are here tonight. Do you, for, for one egotistical moment, believe that you brought yourself here? Do you believe you made the decision? Look to your right. Nobody there. There's nobody here. Who made our decision? Thank you very much.